How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola energy. Energy you want, taste you love. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people, live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. All right, welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show, Millennial Takeover, everyone. Uh, My name is Maggie Thompson with Generation Progress. I'm your guest host for this hour. I am really excited for this segment because this segment is for all of you out there who are struggling with your student debt. I know there are many of you. There are 43 million of you, in fact. Um, So we've got a lot to cover because a lot has been happening with student debt and the companies that are making money off of our student debt in the last couple weeks. So I have two fantastic guests on the phone with me today. really student debt justice warriors. It's uh, you know, a term of art that I would call them. So our first guest is Natalia Abrams, who's the executive director of Student Debt Crisis. Natalia, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Maggie. Thanks so much for including me. Oh, yeah. Oh, but it's a gorgeous day in L.A. And then our second guest <laughs> is Rohit Chopra. He's currently a visiting fellow at the Roosevelt Institute, but he is also the former student loan ombudsman with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So he was the person looking out for your rights as a student loan borrower when he was in government. Rohit, welcome to the show. Good to be with you, Maggie. Awesome. Well, so one of the things that we really wanted to dig in this hour is that there's a lot going on with student debt right now, the Department of Education and how they're servicing the loans uh, through companies like Navient. So this has a real impact for borrowers and especially borrowers who are in default or struggling with their loans. So I just wanted to start out with Rohit. You recently put out some research about student loan defaults. And, you know, this is a financially catastrophic thing for somebody that has loans and defaults on them. Can you walk us through just sort of what happens when a borrower defaults, sort of what are the problems that will give them, and what what your findings were in this new research? Well, there's no question that defaulting on a student loan uh, is a financial catastrophe that is so hard to dig out of. And recently, we released some analysis that showed that Just in calendar year 2016, 1.1 million Americans defaulted on federal student loans. That's more than 3,000 every single day, more than one every 28 seconds. And and here's why you should really uh, be driven wild by this. These defaults are avoidable. Uh, and there's a there's a big effort uh, to pin the blame on all of the borrowers, and and the borrowers are the ones who are really held accountable. Their credit is crushed. Uh, the government snatches their tax refund, and if they're a senior citizen, even their social security is taken away from them. Which should and be the just data criminal. Su- the, the the data suggests that. 
there's some real problems uh, when it comes to student loan defaults. We have $137 billion uh, in defaults, and we now see an average amount owed per borrower of $30,650. That, that's up 17% uh, since the end of 2013. And I'm just really concerned about this lousy track record when it comes to the student loan companies. These are, these are the right. folks who send you the bills, uh, who are earning contracts from the government, whether they are really helping borrowers through the process or keeping them in the dark. Uh, and that's something we've got to solve. Absolutely. And these are companies, when we say student loan servicers, I think the name that will be most familiar to people is Navient, but it's companies like Great Lakes, Fed Loan Servicing. Natalia, help me. <laughs> like there's a, a handful of these companies that are being paid literally millions of dollars um, to service these loans, and they're supposed to be helping borrowers. And it seems more like they're acting like sort of predatory debt collectors. Yeah, can we can we call them collectors or <laughs> right? Uh, you know, they need a better uh, name. The the, the 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 student loan sharks. They're yeah, they're not servicing anything, or at least that's the way it feels when we hear from so many borrowers that contact us at student debt crisis. And you know, we hear about Navient, which a lot of people might remember as Sally May. If they don't remember, they changed their name. They're you know, at least our borrowers complain about them the most. Um, we remember. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and I think that one of the things that, Natalia, I really wanted to have you talk a little bit about is it seems like the Department of Education, because they're hiring these companies, they're paying them millions out of taxpayer dollars. And I think that we've made the case in the past few years that student debt is at a crisis level. Your organization's name has the word crisis in it. That's not something that is a controversial controversial statement. So it seems like the department should really be addressing this issue. But, uh, you know, it, it, it it's almost as if they, they feel no responsibility for student loan borrowers. And in just the first um, 100 days of office have really rolled back yep. some of the protections for people with debt. So if you can just talk people through a little bit of what Secretary DeVos's Department of Education has done. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because it really feels, look, we all know there's a lot going on in our country right now. And so maybe higher education is not being talked about in the news quite as much as we'd like. But it feels like, you know, in the dark, DeVos' Department of Education is just taking away all the great uh, policy measures that we worked on so hard with the Obama administration. So, you know, a few weeks ago, we saw them add 16% collection fees to federal family education loan uh, defaults. So that means, you know, more insult injuries for borrowers that are in trouble and defaulted. Now they'll have an additional 16% added for a select group of uh, direct loans. Um, then, you know, we're she also just this week, you know, so saying <laughs> that the servicers are here to help student loan borrowers, they basically said that, you know, if servicers do wrong by the borrower and they are bad at customer service and they misapply their payments and they injure the borrower, that's okay. They can still have their contracts renewed uh, coming up. And to us, that's a complete contradiction of, you know, wanting to help borrowers is allowing bad servicers to continue to exist. And then the last piece is we have uh, public service loan forgiveness, the first recipient coming on in October of this year, and they have provided no clarity 
the borrowers who will get this forgiveness or not. And it's really started, you know, again, we're hearing from our borrowers that they're freaking out. And they're, right, we got probably 50 borrower calls in the last two weeks asking us if they're going to qualify for federal public service loan forgiveness. And we try our best to help them, but we need clarity from the boss's department. Absolutely. And can we zoom out for a little bit? And maybe Rohit, if you want to just explain to folks what public service loan forgiveness is for people that aren't familiar, this is something that's just a huge benefit for people that have federal student loan debt. And there's also, you know, this is something that you can get your employer in on helping people to sign up for. And then Talia, I just want to make sure we really nail home sort of where the confusion is coming from. But Rohit, can you talk a little bit about this program? Sure. There's a, a number of programs that help borrowers uh, who, who, who get forgiveness, uh, and a few of them are really important for people to know. So the first one I really want to talk about before jumping into your question, Maggie, is income-driven repayment. This is a plan that allows you to pay your student loan as a reasonable percentage of your income. Let's say you graduated uh, in a tough economy or you didn't land the job you needed uh, or that you're hoping to get. You can still stay on track with your student loan uh, by getting an affordable payment. And at the end of 20 years, uh, and I know that sounds like a long time, but at the end of 20 years, the remainder will be forgiven. It will really help you save uh, yourself from delinquency and default, which will kill your credit report. Now, if you are working as a teacher or serving in the military or working in another public service profession, uh, you can get involved. uh, You can sign up for income-driven repayment, and you'll only have to pay for 10 years. Now, here's my worry, Maggie. I checked the data This year is the first year that borrowers are eligible to get some forgiveness uh, under that public service Mm -hmm. loan forgiveness program because it's 10 years after it started. But the data that the Department of Education published shows that only 139 people have sent in the right paperwork uh, to show that they might be on track oh, for 10 years of forgiveness. And, and, and here's the problem. That's so depressing. The problem <laughs> is that so many people made big life decisions based yep. on getting this benefit. Right. And, you know, they're, they're hearing a denial. Um, and this is, you know, I know, I know and I, I, Natalia, I don't want to disagree with you. It isn't just this administration We've seen failures with the servicers and oversight of the student loan program for years and years and years. That's right. And until we can really cut you off there, there. I'm going to cut you off there. We're going to a quick break. But if you're a teacher or you work in public service, there's a lot of you with paperwork outstanding that you can get some loan forgiveness with. Um, If you have questions about your loans, we're going to come back after this short break. Give us a call at 888-6LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. And we'll be right back. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6LESLIE.
All right. My name is Maggie Thompson. Welcome back. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. We have a great show today with my guest, Natalia Abrams from Student Debt Crisis and Rohit Chopra from the Roosevelt Institute, both experts in student debt. And we have a ton of questions pouring in from the last segment. Um, we, we were talking about a program for those of you out there who work in public service and have federal student loans. It's called Public Service Loan Forgiveness. Um, and we actually had a caller um, calling in wondering about her, her own loans. And, you know, I think that, you know, we really want to sort of address folks' concerns and make sure that we clear up as much confusion as possible at this program. So, Denise from Denver, are, are you there? Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Hi, welcome to the show, Denise. Hi, glad to be on. All right, so it sounds like you tried to apply for public service loan forgiveness. Tell us, tell yeah. us what happened. Okay, so my husband uh, graduated from the University of Phoenix in 2007. Um, mm. We've made all of our payments on time, on schedule. We did do um, what they call, um, when, when they offer the, the refinancing or the lower rate interest rate or whatever, um, uh, mm-hmm. consolidation, that's what it is. Um, we did do okay. the consolidation loan, um, but we still continued to make our, you know, our payments on time. And um, we thought, great, you know, 10 years in, and he, you know, he works for the Postal Service. And uh, so we went ahead and um, applied for the program, and then we got a letter of denial. Huh. Rohit, Natalia, do you have any thoughts? I mean, obviously, not knowing the, the full story about some tips for Denise or, or resources where she could go to get some help? My first question, Denise, um, did, when did you consolidate your loans? Because, Maggie, something you asked in the earlier segment was, you know, the qualifications. And you need to have a direct student loan, but not only a direct student loan, it needs to be um, a, a, a direct loan, not an older FFEL loan. So there's a couple different types of federal loans. And only mm-hmm. the newer direct loans qualify, which sounds like, you know, by consolidating, um, that would have done it. Do you know when you consolidated, Denise? Um, we consolidated, I was going to say it had to have been in um, 2009, 2008, mm-hmm. somewhere around there. I mean, so it might have, it might have been a lot of borrowers. It's possible that you did an S. FEL, a Federal Family Education Loan Consolidation. Um, so the very first thing I would do is check to see if you have a direct loan. Um, and the way that people can do this is they can go to studentaid.gov, uh, you sign in, and you're able to see your whole loan portfolio. And that's really important because that tells you the same information that your loan servicers are getting. We always recommend borrowers, you know, know before you go, know before you call. Um, okay. And the next thing you can do is uh, go to the you know the Department of Education's website, and I think this is where Rohit would be good to pick up on exactly okay. what to do if you're getting improperly denied. Mm-hmm. Well, Denise, did they give you a reason why you were denied, or did they just send you, you know, a, a form letter kicking it you seemed, out? It seemed more like a general like form letter, like we're declining you no matter what. Well, I encourage you, I always tell borrowers, don't call, log in to your servicer's website and send them a message through the online messaging platform. This will give you a paper trail. That way you have evidence 
if they ever mislead you or give you wrong mm-hmm. information. And if you feel that you're getting wrong information, what I want you to do is I want you to file a complaint on the CFPB's website. That's consumerfinance.gov. This is a new agency uh, that will take your complaints uh, and help you resolve them. I'm I'm sorry you're going through this mess, uh, and I think that program is a total nightmare when it comes to navigating all that paperwork. But, um, you know, please please demand an explanation uh, from your loan servicer, and hopefully that will get you back on track. Absolutely. And thank you so much, Denise, for calling in. And I'd also encourage you to check out Natalia's organization, Student Debt Crisis, and reach out to email her organization um, as well, um, because they do this all the time, do trainings and help folks um, navigating what's a really complicated problem. And it also helps us as advocates learn what to be pushing the government agencies to do better on. Absolutely. We have another caller on the line. Um, we've got Pete in Los Angeles um, who had a questions about a question about default. Pete, are you with us? Uh, Pete, it looks like we yeah. have you on the line. Can we hear you? Yeah. I think we're, we're having a little bit of connection difficulties, but he had sent in his uh, question online, and his question was, if you're in default, what programs are available to help you? So if, if one of you wants to talk through, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening. Rohit, you said I think it was 3,000 yep. people a day are defaulting. What do people do if they are in that situation? What's a good first step? Well, there, there's really two different paths. So if you have a private student loan, uh, this is the, these are the ones that uh, you don't get through the Department of Education. Uh, often you get them from a bank. Uh, you're going to be you're pretty much out of luck and out of options. Uh, the private student loans, they don't have clear options on how you get out of default. But just like I shared with Denise, the last caller, I encourage everybody to send a very clear letter or message through the online platform of their servicer's website and specifically ask, what can I do to get out of default? All right. And the and, same thing Rohan, goes I'm, with the federal loan servicer. I hate to cut you servicer. off there, but we are, we're running a little bit short of time. So can you just tell people the website one last time um, where they can file a complaint and get more information? Sure. It's consumerfinance.gov, and there's all sorts of resources there about how to get out of default and file a complaint. All right. Thank you so much, Rohit and Natalia, a student debt here on The Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be right back after a quick break. Welcome back, folks, to The Leslie Marshall Show. My name's Maggie Thompson with Generation Progress, your guest host today. Um, Today, we have on our second segment, uh, we're going to be talking about criminal justice reform and policing. So I have two great guests, one of whom is in studio with me. Welcome, Ed. Hi, Maggie. Um, Ed Chung is the uh, Vice President for Criminal Justice Reform here at the Center for American Progress. Thanks so much for coming on. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. And on the phone, all the way from Oklahoma, one of my faves, Jacoby, are you with us? 
Yes, I am. How are you? Hey, I'm good. Jacoby Crowley um, is a member of Generation Progress's Fight for a Future Network, which is a network of several thousand people working on gun violence prevention and criminal justice reform. And he's also a crisis interventionist at Bridge Academy in Lawton, Oklahoma. Thanks so much for calling into the show. Thank you, Meg. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, Well, Ev, we're going to start with you in studio here. So one of the things that we've been talking a a lot about, uh, not just here in D.C., but across the country, is sort of what Donald Trump's sort of law and order platform um, and talk, uh, you know, using phrases like American carnage um, uh, means, given that the Department of Justice under Jeff Sessions is taking shape. Um, You know, he's been talking a lot about Chicago. He's been talking a lot about Ferguson, but not necessarily in a way where I I think he's genuinely going to do anything to address what we're facing. So could you talk a little bit about why that's such a bad frame and approach for um, the issues you work on? Yeah, I think one of the things that we've heard uh, from the Trump administration or for the Trump campaign before they got elected and it continued through is this whole notion that there is this massive violent crime wave that is happening across our country. And number one, it's not true. There are certainly cities in this country that are experiencing higher level spikes in homicides or violent crime, but it's not all across the board. It's not in every city. New York City, for example, in 2016, reached all time lows in in homicides. Uh, Crime rates continue to go down, but that's not the story that the Trump administration wants you to hear. And he he wants you to hear things like Chicago, which is really in a bad situation. Yet when you're trying to roll out as a Trump as a Trump administration is this really tough on crime, law and order, we need more incarceration, more prosecutions. You need that rhetoric behind you that this is just this dystopia, this this horrible place to kind of support what you're going to do. And that's part of uh, the narrative that's been coming out of the administration. Yeah. And it seems unreal that that uh, more incarceration, not only because of the cost, but just in terms of what the country needs right now is a philosophy that's being sort of put forward. It's uh, I don't understand it. Yeah. It's so I mean, it has it's been shown also not to be effective as right. well. And um, there's a lot of different advancements that's been made in criminal justice to talk about prevention and treatment and the real core issues that we need to d- address in order for crime rates to remain near historic lows where they are. Absolutely. Jacoby, I want to bring you in here because you are really uh, living this and working on this issue day after day on the ground in Oklahoma. Um, Uh, You've you've done some work on criminal justice reform in your community. You even ran for office with a focus on these issues. You know, can you talk a little bit about sort of how you see these issues on the ground in Oklahoma and the work that you've been doing at the local level to address it? Well, first things first is that when we first decided that we were going to tackle the issue of criminal justice reform, I was told multiple times by many different people that, hey, you shouldn't do this. You know, it's mm. going to be a controversial uh, type of, uh, um, you know, subject, you know, pick something like, you know, economy or things within that sort. And for I me, love that you, know, you didn't listen to them, Jacoby. <laughs> <laughs> Really, what really got me to that point because um, I was still on the edge, and when I went to Generation Progress Summit, um, I started connecting and meeting a lot of people um, in, in connection towards uh, the criminal justice reform. And I started to hear a lot of different ideas, and that's also when I was sitting in some briefing rooms, and they were telling me, you know, Oklahoma ranks number one in the nation when it comes to incarceration for women, number three in the nation for incarceration mm-hmm. for men. You know, I was finding out that my county was, you know, in the 
highest ranking counties in the state of Oklahoma when it comes to incarceration. So I was hearing a lot of different stuff at that same time, and I'm, you know, I was really overwhelmed by it. But it really came to me when I heard about, you know, uh, Bend the Box and uh, uh, rehabilitation programs that are provided towards, uh, you know, the criminal justice reform system. Um, and I started really to get behind that because, you know, my, my family was affected by it. I see a lot of people uh, that I see on a consistent basis, especially in the city of Lawton and Oklahoma, that are affected by either by family or by personal life themselves. And, you know, it really it, it gets to me to know that we're not providing them with the adequate, you know, necessary needs that they need uh, when it mm-hmm. comes towards, you know, being incarcerated or even getting out. You know, because, we, you know, we talk about putting these people away, but we not, ne- don't necessarily talk about exactly what we're going to do to reform them and change them so when they be, when they get out, they become productive citizens. And, you know, that's something that's very, very key to me uh, down here. And I personally feel that um, at any level, you know, it starts at the community basis. It starts at the local level. You have to get people ignited at the local level before it can even get to the state or even at the federal level. And if people around you are not excited about it, um, then uh, you probably won't get an argument or a great argument about it. Um, and so I think that our community and as our state has really been getting uh, involved in criminal justice reform. We passed our first uh, state question for criminal justice reform, which is 78 and 781. It was providing mm. funding for um, it was providing funding for rehabilitation programs uh, and things within that sort, and also um, I, um, I think it was putting some uh, taking some felonies off and things within that sort too. So I was really excited about that. But I, it, it is a lot of work to be done. A lot, absolutely, of absolutely. And I think you know, uh, bringing it back to you, Ed, one of the things that uh, we talk a lot a lot about. In this context, and I think sometimes there's a separation between what's happening here in D.C. and with Jeff Sessions and the Department of Justice. But a lot of that work that the department is doing is manifesting on the ground in municipalities and especially when it comes to police reform. And I know that you just published a new fact sheet today on sort of the threats to policing reform. Can you just walk through just at a high level what the Obama Department of Justice did on policing reform and what the threats are to it from a Sessions Department of Justice. Yeah, and I want to echo what Jacoby is saying um, in terms of uh, real reform, lasting reform happens at the local level. Mm-hmm. And here's where I would agree with Jeff. Well, agree is a bit strong, but here's where I think <laughs> some of our... Um, Even a blind squirrel finds in that, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> there's some alignment in kind of a philosophy where Jeff Sessions recently said the federal government should not be in the process of managing local police departments. And that, that's not what the federal government is there to do. I agree with that. And real police reform and accountability where it needs to happen has to happen at the local level. Yeah. But there are situations and where the issues may be either too difficult or where there's local politics. I mean, that never happens, right? There's local <laughs> politics that get in the way yeah. <laughs> or where sometimes you just need somebody as an outside um, force or an outside intervening party to look at real deep issues. And so that's what these consent decrees and these pattern of practice investigations were designed to do. And a, there's been a real discussion about whether or not policing reform, how much it's needed. And so some people say there are you know, just a few bad apples in an agency that really tarnished the reputation of everybody. Um, some people say that the entire system is you know, discriminatory and it, it just needs a real mm. overhaul. 
without getting into kind of the details of that, I think what's important is for the Justice Department's tools to tools for reform, the pattern of practice investigations that result in consent decrees aren't the ones that are focused on individual instances of bad conduct. And they're not focused on law enforcement as a profession self-examining whether they need change. They're looking at police departments and agencies where the policies and procedures of that agency are the things that are causing those officers who are obeying those policies or following those policies to engage in a pattern or practice of misconduct. And I'm not saying that you know individual instances aren't part of that. Of course, in situations they are. But what's important to note that the, is that these are serious organizational issues. Mm-hmm. One thing that Colin pointed out is there are over 18,000 law enforcement agencies in the entire country. Since 1994, when the consent decree authority was given to the De- Department of Justice by Congress, there have been only 70 departments that have been investigated. Wow. And of those, there have been only 40 consent decrees or settlement or reform agreements. And so it's not like the federal government is going to a vast majority or a significant number, it's taking the most serious cases where organizational policies need change. Yeah. And I think that this makes so much sense to me because it seems like these are fundamental civil rights that are being violated in a community. If the law enforcement agency is the target of that or the the Im- implicated in that, mm-hmm. there needs to be sort of a referee or a traffic cop just to break down how I think about this. And the Department of Justice can play that sort of mediating role to step in when there's a systematic Uh, wrong that's threatening people's civil rights. I think that's what the Department of Justice is supposed to do. Absolutely. And let me add one other thing. I think um, the policing profession as a whole over the last five, seven years did begin this process of kind of self-examination. Are we doing things generally that, uh, that are the best practices and so forth? And to their real credit, and they should be given credit for that, since Ferguson, that process in a lot of departments and a lot of professional associations has been really accelerated. So there are a lot of law enforcement leaders, not only chiefs, but also everybody down the line that are really looking at this. For the Department of Justice to then say, we're going to step back from our role as that referee or role as that backstop, that last resort, is really a, a, a poor signal that these mm-hmm. things aren't important. And that's that's the real danger of what yeah, the Department of Justice absolutely. is doing. And I think, just to bring it back to you, Jacoby, I think that, you know, I was talking about how change happens at the local level. And even for these sort yes. of big discussions about the role of the Department of Justice in this issue, I mean, one of the touch points that Ed talked about was Ferguson. And I guess just, you know, if you can talk a little bit about how you see um, the need to organize around these issues at the local level, not just where you are, but just m- more broadly for anyone that's sort of living in our country in a Trump sessions era, sort of what people yes. need to be doing at the local level. Well, for you know, what we do down here is we try to bring in a community ordinance where we are connected so more the community is connected towards the police department itself and mm-hmm. the justice system itself and that's one of the biggest things that we have you know before when we have ferguson and the baltimore and all these different other you know uh you know situations that we're having across the, the, the nation it was also the disconnect towards the community and right. the and the police system or you know the justice system and uh, now we are doing a collective effort it is bringing up a lot of conversation and some interesting conversations of you know how 
how policing should be brought up as well as how you know things should be handled at the local level um here we uh we have a i have a great relationship with the uh Police chief, police chief, uh, police chief uh, Smith, and uh, a lot of leadership here as well. We have connected and we have sit down. And one of the biggest things when we when that happened, one of the uh, you know the conversations that was have was more of you know what can we do, um, what can we do to better uh, make sure that our are y'all still there. Yeah, oh, yeah. Keep, okay, keep, yeah, yeah preach, yeah. preach, Jacoby. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm sitting here nodding. <laughs> I was like, we're trying you can't to, uh, see me, can we, but <laughs> what can we do to uh, make our, you know, make our community better? What can we do? And that's what he asked us. I mean, and that's the biggest deal. You know, one of the biggest problems that I think Sessions is having is that he's not going to these communities. He's not mm. going to these, you know, these areas where there are. Affected, you know, they, these, you know, they, that have been affected by, you know, some type of, you know, bad policing or bad policies that have been put in place that needs to be reversed or, you know, somewhat changed. And he doesn't understand that, you know, and that's the biggest problem that I, I see even in the South, um, in in the areas in which uh, we do have a lot of problems in. We need to have some conversation about it, but not just conversation. We need to put some boots to the ground. And I think we're doing a, a better job of putting boots to the ground and really providing opportunity uh for the people that are being affected by it and uh you know shining it to light so we can really collectively change and move in a progressive way absolutely and Ed, i know that you're thinking about this sort of from a big perspective what is the and, and some cities are already resisting trump's order on consent consent decrees but as you're just looking at it from the perspective here what are the things that cities can do or people should be asking their cities or their states should do to do yeah i think it, it just Following again on what, what Jacoby is saying, I think those types of c- conversations between c- communities, especially communities of color, because we know throughout the country that yeah. that's where a lot of the bad policing tactics have mm. affected yeah. people that's right. so so um, in in very harmful ways. I think those conversations need to happen, but it's not it's more than just conversations, as, as Jacoby was saying. There needs to be tangible change that hopefully happens from the local level. And, you know, when I was at the Justice Department in the last administration, I had a real chance to get to know police uh, chiefs and police officers who are really looking to do that. For example, uh, you know, the Minneapolis Police Department was one of the, the places that we worked with. And they changed the, their use of force policy. They changed uh, some of their department policies. And that's not rare across the country. So I think whenever we get into this discussion, we got to make sure that, you know, we are balanced in, our, in the way that we're thinking, not just for the sake of balance, but to absolutely give credit um, to law enforcement and communities that are looking to make this type of progress. Absolutely. And Jacoby, I know that we've we've talked about this so much, but these are issues, you know, whether it's gun violence or criminal justice reform that are disproportionately Uh, affecting young people, our generation, you know, whether it's gun violence, you know, more people are more young people are killed by guns than are killed in auto accidents now. And it's it's exactly the same when it comes to the the impacts of injustices in the criminal justice system. So I think that, you know, from your mind, if you could ask young people to do one thing, you know, they're going to walk into their city council office or their mayor's office or their governor's office or their chief police chief's office. What are what do, what do we need to do as a generation to really stand up as the ones that are bearing the brunt of this? 
Well, number one, we need to come up with a plan, a collective plan mm. that's going to allow us to be successful, not just for the now, but also in the future. My biggest thing is what are you doing next? Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, what are you doing for the next? What's your, you know, so are you working for the next person? Are you working for the next generation? Are you making sure that when they come in, they're not going to go through the same situations that we've been through? That's and right. that's, you know, that's one of my biggest, you know, deals. That's why down here in the state of Oklahoma, we've decided. All right. To, you know, I'm going to give you. Just so, sorry to cut you off, Jacoby. We are out of time. Uh, thank you so much, Ed. Thank you, Jacoby. Uh, this is the Leslie Marshall Show. You all have been fantastic. We'll be right back after a short break. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Maggie Thompson with Generation Progress. We're going to cut over to Victoria Jones, a reporter with Talk Media News. She was just at the White House press briefing today, and it was a busy day in the news. Victoria, are you with us? Yes, I am. All right. Well, it sounds like a lot of a lot of things are happening. So um, let's start off with Afghanistan. What's going on? Yeah. Well, this uh, took everybody by surprise, I think, and we had briefings, of course, not only from the White House, but also from the Pentagon, and that's significant because the mother of all bombs was dropped on ISIS caves and tunnels in Afghanistan, um, and wow. uh, so that was a bit of a surprise to everybody because that bomb had never been dropped in a combat situation before by the United States. It's a munition so massive that it actually had to be dropped from the rear of a cargo plane. And uh, it hit a tunnel complex in Nangarhar province, according to the statement from the U.S. military. Didn't say how many militants were killed. Sean Spicer, the press secretary, said that they took all um, precautions about civilians. We don't know if any civilians were killed yet. Now, they say that they believe that these these ISIS militants have been using tunnels and caves in order to launch attacks against U.S. forces. And so that is why they launched this particular very, very, very strong bomb against them. Wow. That's I mean, that's just unbelievable. I mean, coming back home, I know that there was also some news about a church in Alabama wanting to form a police force. We were just talking about this on the break, and what what was behind that? This is really quite extraordinary. This is a bill that passed Tuesday in the state senate in Alabama, the Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It's a giant institution, 4,000 members, 40 ministries with schools for students from preschool through grade 12. Wow. And a, a, a bill passed by the state Senate is going to grant them the, the right to appoint and employ people to act as police officers to protect the safety and integrity of the church. Now, the ACLU says it's granting the right to a church governmental police power. They say it's going against the First Amendment. Wow, that's incredible. I, I um, it, it was a, a new concept for me, a church with a police force. 
Uh, well, thank you so much, Victoria. We are out, just about out of time. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Maggie Thompson with Generation Progress. We'll catch you next time. How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola energy. Energy you want, taste you love. How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola energy. Energy you want, taste you love.